reading from Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, 36 to 43. Jesus told them then another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At this time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Isn't it a beautiful day in the kingdom of heaven? Have you thought about the fact that you're living in the kingdom of heaven recently? Is this something that makes sense to you or feels right to you? Because it sounds quite strange when we use that language, when we speak about it. But if we accept the teaching of the Bible and accept Jesus' teaching, then the kingdom of heaven has been brought to earth with the coming of Jesus Christ. This is what we've remembered at Christmas time. And throughout his ministry, Jesus went around proclaiming the kingdom of God had come near. It was good news and it was among us. So if we believe Jesus, then we are living in the kingdom of heaven today. But if this is true, then does the kingdom of heaven look like you would expect it to? For example, would you expect the kingdom of heaven to be overrun by a pandemic virus? Would you expect there to be illness and poverty and conflict in the kingdom of heaven? Would you expect pollution and climate change to be destroying ecosystems in the heavenly realms? These do not sound like characteristics of God's kingdom, of the place where a perfectly holy God is in charge. And the news of this past week, I think, has reminded us that evil is clearly present in our world. And so the question we ask ourselves is how do we reconcile Jesus' claim that the kingdom of heaven is here with the fact that there is so much evil around us? What is the kingdom of heaven really like? Well, the nature of the kingdom of heaven is the topic of our January sermon series, and it's the series on the kingdom parables, which in these parables Jesus is saying this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
he's speaking to those who have ears to hear. So he's saying, this is what you will see and experience in God's kingdom, which has come to earth. In the parable of the weeds that James has just read for us, there are many things that we can learn about the nature of God's kingdom. But I think the questions that are asked within the parable help us to understand the issue that Jesus is addressing, which is at the heart of this parable, which is the question, what is to be done about evil in the kingdom of heaven? I'm not sure if you've had conversations with people around you, but the problem of evil in the world is one of the biggest barriers to people putting their trust in God. Because if God, who is perfectly loving and perfectly good and all-powerful, has promised goodness and peace and has sown people into the kingdom who are good people, then where does the evil come from? And if God is so powerful and loving then why does he continue to allow evil in his kingdom? Perhaps you yourself have asked these questions of God. God, I'm following you, so why am I suffering? God, if you are truly powerful and loving, then why are you letting these disasters happen? Why do you allow corrupt people in power? Why does it seem that evil is winning? And I think if we do want to put our trust in God, it is reasonable to be asking these questions. This is what the parable of the weeds addresses. So when we look at those questions, if you have a look in your booklets, you can see in verse 27, it asks about the origin of evil in God's kingdom. The servants say, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? In other words, where did the evil come from? Then in verse 28, the servants ask the owner of the field another question. Do you want us to go and pull them up, pull up the weeds? In other words, they're asking, how should we deal with evil in the kingdom? And I'm sure that many of you have noticed that the answer given by the owner of the field is a confronting one. Although there is a delay, the weeds end up in the fire. As much as we hate evil and suffering in the world, a judgment of fire is an uncomfortable idea. Passages like this in the Bible are easier to ignore. But despite the fiery language of this parable, what I want to try and do is convince you that this parable is actually really encouraging. And if we have ears to hear it and therefore respond to it, it is encouraging for everyone and not just those in the church. So let's talk about how to deal with evil in the kingdom of heaven. Well, first, the parable makes it clear that right now, God's way of dealing with evil in the world means leaving it where it is. Evil will be present in the kingdom and the world until the end of the ages. That is what the parable says. And of course, at face value, this does not sound encouraging. But look at verse 29. When the servants ask if they should pull up the evil weeds, the owner stops them so that the wheat might grow to maturity. God wants his people to mature and flourish. It is God's care for the wheat that stops him from destroying the weeds now. Because if the weeds are pulled up, the wheat might be pulled up too. Another way of thinking about the continued presence of evil in the world is to see it as a sign of God's patience. It is a sign of patience towards his people, allowing them to grow, 
and it is patience towards those who do not love him. 2 Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Perhaps an illustration to help us think about how this is caring is to think about a group project. Has anyone done a group project before? A show of hands, yes. And have any of you ever had a slacker in your group project? Yes, I'm sure of hands, yes. Uh, it is frustrating, isn't it, when you've got slacker in your group? Uh, it definitely makes a project more difficult. There is no question about that. But how do you choose to respond to it? Do you complain and hope that you might get moved into another group where there are no slackers? Good luck with that. Do you chuck it in and just plan to fail the project? Do you decide to do the bare minimum and hope that it will be enough to pass? Or do you decide to do your best, knowing that it will mean that you'll probably have to carry the slacker and knowing that it will still maybe result in a lesser quality of the project, but knowing for certain that you will learn more yourself? In my life, I have done all of these things. I have probably been the slacker in these things as well. But at the last option, that, that last option of choosing to do our best is the one that will lead to the most growth for us. And so it can be with the presence of evil in our life. We do not have to love the presence of evil. We do not have to wish for it to stay. We can complain about it. We can be put off by it. But we can also choose to respond to it in a way that helps us to grow. And we know from Romans 5 that God encourages us with trials to persevere because they build character and hope. In other words, they give us opportunity to mature. So paradoxically, the presence of evil in the world is something we can be encouraged by because it testifies to God's care for the wheat, God's patience with people. We also learn in the parable of the weeds that in the kingdom of heaven, it is not clear until the end which people are people of the kingdom and which people belong to the devil. The weed that is sown in the parable looks like wheat, but it bears no seed. This suggests that today in the kingdom in the world, it is difficult to distinguish the good from the evil. And I know that on some level, this might also sound discouraging, but it should strongly encourage us towards being non-judgmental people. I'm sure the world would be thrilled and would benefit immensely if Christians focused on growing in maturity and bearing fruit rather than focusing on passing judgment on others. Fruit or seed is, after all, what differentiates the wheat from the weeds at the end. And so I think we can ask ourselves, well, what is the fruit that people of the kingdom of heaven are going to bear? In the parable in verse 41 and 43, it doesn't say explicitly, but it does say uh, or does distinguish between everything that causes sin and the righteous. So the difference between the people of the kingdom and the people of the devil is the difference between righteousness, which from other parts of the Bible we know means doing the will of God or obeying God, and then being a stumbling block or living by your own laws. So we are encouraged in this parable not to worry about judging who is good or evil, but instead to focus on growing and bearing fruit. 
And if the fruit that the people of the kingdom of heaven grow and bear includes the fruit of the Spirit, which I believe it does, then this can only be good for everyone, not just for us, not just for the church, but for the whole world. More love, more peace, more joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Another good reason for us to focus on fruiting, not judging, is because we are ill-equipped to judge who or what is good or evil. We are all flawed. And despite our best intentions, we all struggle with self-interest over serving others. We bend our sense of what is right and wrong around what is efficient or what is convenient or what feels good for us at that moment. And of course, the world is complex. Very little in life actually has a clear right or wrong answer. I know that some of us don't like that idea. Uh, We try to impose right and wrong in lots of spaces. But we are biased. Which of us can actually see all the details? Which of us can actually pass an informed and just judgment? Ethical dilemmas are good at reminding us of this complexity in the world. I'm referencing something quite old now, but in the 2008 Batman movie, The Dark Knight, there is a scene where there are two ferries and the Joker has put a bomb on both of these ferries, but he's put the detonator on the other ferry. One ferry is filled with civilians, the other ferry is filled with prisoners, and the dilemma that this raises is whether they can trust the people on the other ferry not to detonate the bomb, not to push the button, or should they push the button first and save themselves? What would you do in a situation like that? What assumptions would you use to make your decision? Can you be sure that you would make the right choice? Now, I know that we must use our judgment. I'm not saying that we can't ever judge at all. But I think that there is a difference between using our judgment and standing in judgment on people. And I think we have to hold on to the questions, remind ourselves, can we really say that we know what work God is doing in someone's life? Do we understand God's timing about how he is working in someone's life? Can we say that there is nothing evil in us, nothing that resists God or puts our own desires before others? Judgment of others is a huge responsibility to take on. And I think the parable of the weeds does offer us a reminder of the difficulty of judging good and evil in the world. And so it does encourage us to be non-judgmental of people. And this is why it's good for us to work on bearing fruit, uh, which is unquestionably good for everyone. But of course, the question still remains then, how do we deal with evil in the kingdom? We can look at it as a reminder of God's patience and we can focus on bearing good fruit. But what about justice now? We want justice. Surely evil doesn't win all the time. Surely we shouldn't be inactive. There's a bit of a problem, though, because while our society is quick to point out injustices in others, to go so far to cancel people, which is to stop paying them attention, to stop buying their merchandise because they've been seen to do something wrong, still, to speak about judgment in any absolute way is to risk being written off as a bigot, And definitely it fails to meet current society's sort of push for relativism. And that is why parables like this are so hard to stomach. There is nothing relative about the judgment that we see taking place 
in this parable. There is no middle ground. The parable indicates that people either belong to the kingdom of heaven or they belong to the devil. They either end up in the barn or in the fire. Why must there be such an absolute outcome? Well, in the image of the weeds in the furnace, we see the fulfilment of God's word that he will ultimately destroy all evil. And this is a good thing. Evil is the absence of good. It is like decay or like rust. It eats away at what is good and whole until it destroys it. Evil oppresses and it drags us away from God who is the source of all life. And judgment is necessary if evil is to be destroyed. Because, as the parable says, once the evil has been destroyed, then the righteous will be gathered into the barn and shine like the sun. People can flourish without evil around them. And so if we do truly want justice and we want full life for people, then we also need judgment. We just don't want people to be destroyed. And this brings us to the most encouraging lesson from this parable, which is that invites us to leave judgment to Jesus. It is the Son of Man as the owner of the field, Jesus Christ, who answers the servants' questions about when and how judgment will take place. So a question for you is, does it encourage you to think that Jesus is the one who would pass judgment in the end? If you have wept like John did, because you cannot see how justice will be done in the earth, then I encourage you to listen to the elder in Revelation 5 again, who says to the weeping John, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne. Jesus is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain. It is to Jesus that the elders around the throne sing, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Leaving judgment to Jesus should encourage us because we already know what sort of judge Jesus is. He is the only worthy judge. What makes him worthy? Well, for a start, he is a judge who will gather people from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is encouraging. And when we look at Jesus' life in the Gospels, we can see the sorts of judgments that Jesus makes. We are able to see his character. Consider, for example, Jesus' judgment of the unclean, like the bleeding woman, the blind men, the demoniac in the cemetery. These people were shunned by society because of their social unacceptability. But Jesus saw them and made time for them. He touched their wounds and healed them. He removed their shame. He gave them peace and forgiveness and life. Jesus' judgment of these people was full of mercy and grace. Or consider Jesus' judgment of the Samaritan woman with the multitude of partners. As a Jew and a religious authority, Jesus could have condemned her for her sexual sins. But instead, he speaks with her. He shows her that he knows everything about her. And he offers her what she needs to meet her deepest desires. 
Jesus' judgment of her was full of mercy and grace. And consider Jesus' disciples. Matthew, the tax collector, Thomas, the doubter, Peter, with his impulsive zeal. These men were uneducated. They were reluctant a lot of the time. They were exasperating. But Jesus still entrusts them as his witnesses and partners in ministry. He loves them through their betrayal of him. And despite that betrayal, he establishes them as his apostles. Jesus' judgment of these people is full of mercy and grace. We have examples of the way that Jesus responds to people that give us an idea about his judgment and how he will judge. But most significantly, and I know that you know where I'm going with this, when we look at Jesus, we see that he would go to a cross for us rather than condemn us. On the cross, Jesus took judgment of the whole world upon himself. Look at the way that Jesus judges people. Is this not cause for us to have hope about judgment? God's perfect representative is not influenced by what is popular or self-serving, but he does what is merciful and loving, and he will do. This is what makes Jesus worthy to be the judge. Because of the cross, it is to Jesus and only Jesus that God has given all authority in heaven and on earth. God has seated Jesus at his right hand from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the perfectly worthy judge for all people, for all time. Perfectly just, perfectly merciful, perfectly loving. And so if we, who are imperfect, can feel such great concern for the lives of others, if we feel so much love for people that we do not know, if we think our sense of right and wrong is good enough to decide what should happen to them, then how much more perfect is God's concern and love for those that he has made? How much more perfect is God's understanding of right and wrong? And so the parable encourages us to leave judgment up to Jesus. But if we leave judgment up to Jesus, what can people of the kingdom do today about justice and evil. We've already talked about the first thing, which is growing and bearing fruit. And the beauty of doing that is that while evil removes goodness, bearing the fruits of righteousness actively undoes evil. Proverbs 25 verse 22 and uh, Romans 12, 19 to 20 say that people should feed their enemy rather than taking revenge. And by doing so, they will heap burning coals on their head. And I know that this is a bit of a strange phrase, but ultimately what it's pointing to is the fact that caring for our enemies de-escalates conflict. It undoes the, the evil that is being done. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Bearing good fruit is actively anti-evil. I think it also helps to remember that it is the devil who sows the weeds, so we are in a spiritual battle. The good news is that although the enemy is stealthy, God has the ultimate power over all evil. And God invites people of the kingdom to draw on this power and participate in his good work. Through the power of the Spirit of God in you, you can be praying that God will be transforming the hearts of people 
around us as he has transformed our own heart. And you can ask that God will lead others to come to accept the same mercy and grace that he is offering them and that we have been offered so that they also will choose to live lives that are good rather than evil. You can also ask God to strengthen and comfort you and to guide you so that you have the courage and wisdom to bear witness to the goodness of God, even in the face of evil. And meeting together is one way that we can be encouraged uh, so that even though we might be struggling with the way that evil is affecting our lives and affecting the lives of others, we are reminded that we are not alone in the field. There are others in the kingdom growing alongside you. And finally, if you are at all unsure whether you belong to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the devil, then hear this truth. If you accept that you need Jesus and you invite him to be the king in your life, then you are righteous because of him and you do belong to his kingdom. And as a person of his kingdom, you can be assured that you can confess your fears and your judgments to Jesus, knowing that he will comfort and forgive you every day until the end of the ages when he will gather you with his people into the barn where you can shine like the sun.